John 3, 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So that's where we are, John 3, very familiar. You would think John 3, 16, very familiar passage, probably the most Familiar, it probably is the most familiar passage of the entire Bible. Maybe in the beginning was God. That one's easy. You would think that as, you, as a pastor, as, as a, a, a teacher of Scripture, the verse would be just a joyous time of, of just explaining God's love for you. And, and, and there is some of that. But I have to admit to you this morning that my heart is also very, very heavy this morning. You can see John 3.16 everywhere. Many of you know it. You see it in concert halls, maybe sporting events. But John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, doesn't in and of itself really and truly explain the whole story, truth about the gospel, the good news. 1 Corinthians 15, maybe a little bit more so, Paul says that Christ died He's death for our sins. That was the reason. Then then he says that he was buried in the grave. He was raised from the dead. And he was seen by many. A little more gospel in that story. And actually, if you read John John 3.16, one could walk away, if that's the only verse, walk away with not truly understanding the need of humanity and why it is that Jesus came into the world. What is God's love really all about? Because I think it's, it's, it's easy to memorize that verse, and it's good to tell others that God loves them. That's true. But verse 16 in this book here, John 3.16, is not by itself. There's context. There's more to it than just 3.16, which we will look at today. Okay? So that's where we're going to be at. If you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible, keep things in context. I want to make three, if I can, and I can since I got the microphone, uh, initiatory statements before we jump into the text. All right, three just quick things I just want to mention as we prepare to hear what hopefully God has to say according to his word. Number one, my hope is this morning as we look at this narrative and finish up this narrative that began two weeks ago, is if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, the love that God has for you, which you already know, will be magnified. That you will walk away from here making much of God, making much of his love for you, understanding and and, and deepening the understanding that you have about God's love for you. Your heart will be overwhelmed this morning, number one. Number two, if you're on the fence or you're not really sure and you haven't given yourself totally and completely to Christ... I hope that as we look at what God is saying about his love, as we look, about, uh, look to what God is saying about why he loves us and what does it mean that he sent his son, I hope that you will see him turn from your sin, which could call repentance, and be born of his spirit. My hope is, in some way, all of us will, will see the glory, will see the, the incalculable worth of Christ and then fall on our face and worship him and praise him for all that he is and all that he has done in the gospel. Number three, many of you know John 3.16. And I'm going to tell you this morning that what you believe about the verse is probably true, but it is most likely incomplete. It is most likely incomplete. As I said, it doesn't stand alone. 
And, uh, and unfortunately, today, when, you, when we share the gospel, we share the love of Jesus with people, tell them that God loves them, many times today, I think what happens is we face this kind of like, ah, all right, yeah, God loves me, like a, a yawn. Some people are like, uh, you know, you're talking about God's love, and they think, well, he's supposed to. That's his job. Look how lovable I am. That wasn't really that funny, but okay, I, I am lovable, but anyway. But hear me carefully, the love of God according to Scripture is probably different than what's being taught in maybe some churches, definitely in Western culture. That's why we do expository preaching. We take the Word of God, we begin with the chapter 1, verse 1, and we walk through the book trying to keep things in context so that the original hearer of the Word, the original uh, uh, one who wrote the Scripture, God inspired, God's the ultimate author, but man wrote as God inspired them. What we want to do here in this church is hear what God has to say. What is God declaring in his word? What is God saying to Nicodemus, to to John the apostle? What is God saying then so we can hear his voice today? You don't, maybe you don't know this, but it doesn't really matter what I think about the love of God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks about God's love. What matters is what God thinks about God's love. That's most important. So we want to hear what God has to say, not the opinions of man. So if I'm in the Scripture, and I'll have the Scripture up, you know the story, hopefully you've been tracking with us. Um, if, it's, if I'm saying something that's not according to what God has said, dismiss it. But if I can prove according to Scripture, this is God speaking, this is what God means to say according to the Scripture, I hope that you respond in faith and trust with him, in him, okay? That's the three things. Now, let's bring you up to speed if you're tracking with us. Verse 16 in the Gospel according to John is a a, a follow-up, a connection between chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, a conversation that Jesus began with Nicodemus. Jesus is now talking with Nicodemus. We've been down that road. We saw that already. And he tells Nicodemus that the greatest need he has, now he's a religious leader, he's a Bible-thumping conservative, knows the Scripture, Old Testament, he's a scholar. He tells him that more religion is not what he needs. Trying harder is not what he needs. Doing better is not what we need. Even being Jewish, being brought up in the Jewish faith, is not what he needs in order to enter, in order to see, in order to go into the presence of God in the kingdom of God. That's not what he needs. He needs to be born anew. That's what he tells him. You need to have an experience where the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates your dead heart so that you will have life in yourself. That's what he tells him in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. 1 through 7. You need to be born anew. And then he goes on, he says, listen, you shouldn't be surprised because the Old Testament, of which you're a scholar, speaks of it all over the New Old Testament. It's the new covenant promise, Ezekiel 36, we looked at that, that God was going to renew his people, and God was going to give him the, his spirit and wash them and clean them and forgive them and, and put his spirit within them. You shouldn't be surprised. And he says, listen, Nicodemus, the spirit of God, when he comes, he is sovereign. He will go wherever he wills. And just like you could see the wind, excuse me, you can't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind, so is everyone who's been born again, who's been regenerated, who has God's spirit dwelling within them. There's going to be change in their life. There's going to be change. Maybe not fast, maybe not right away, but there's slow change. There's a new life, a new purpose. It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. That's where we ended last week. In verses 14 and 15. Jesus explains this to Nicodemus, and then he tells him, listen, there's an Old Testament story, sir, that you know. There's an Old Testament story that you know, that the Jews would have known when Jesus brought it up in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. There's an Old Testament story, and Jesus takes that narrative, which we'll look at in a minute, and ties it into his death and resurrection. And he says to Nicodemus, that's what it's all about. That's what, that's what it's all about. God loved the world that he sent his son. Okay, that's where we're at. So Nicodemus, you need to be born again. The spirit is sovereign. If you have been reborn of his spirit, there'll be a change. And it's all connected to this story in the Old Testament. That's where we're at. So let's, let's, let's look at four things this morning. And the first one I want to look at is the passion. Okay, so the first is the passion. Let me move this, okay. The purpose 
the pronouncement, and then the provision, okay? Now, number one, the passion. So, God so loved the world, what is behind it? What is the motive? Look at verse 16, great verse, right? We all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I didn't quote that right. I hope you, I hope you caught it. It doesn't say that, does it? What's the first word? For. For God so loved the world. The word for is pointing back and pointing forward. It's pointing back to the Old Testament narrative that Jesus just spoke in verse 14 and 15 and it's pointing, pointing forward to the motive of his love for his people. For God so loved the world. Let's tie it together. Let's tie it together, right? So, so Nicodemus is being told that this Old Testament narrative is, is, one of, is, the, is the for of why God loved the world. And what Jesus had done in verse 14 and 15, if, you, if you're with us last week, Jesus was resolving the very issue that Nicodemus questioned. He said to Jesus, how could a man be born again? How could a man be born anew? Does he have to go back, look at verse 4 of chapter 3, go back into his mother's womb? How does he start over? How, how does this new life come? How does this new birth actually take place? He can't go back into his mother's womb. And Jesus tells him the way to be born again, the way to have new life, is not to go back into his mother's womb. Look at verse 14. Moses, he says, you know that story about Moses? He lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see the connection? This is how you become new. This is what you need to understand. You need to look at Jesus. Let me just, I know some of you here last week, let me just give you quickly what Jesus is talking about. Moses, in Numbers 21, he had just, by the hand of God, delivered the people out of Egypt in slavery. He wasn't quite at the promised land yet, he was in the midst of the promised land on his way there, okay? Numbers 21 records this, this story. While they were out in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, after God had delivered them from Pharaoh of ten great plagues, the people, Numbers 21, become impatient. We said that last week, remember? Like, has anybody ever been impatient? Okay? The people began, you know, they were impatient, and Numbers says, they began to speak against God, and they began to speak against Moses, and they said, we have what they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I mean, slavery, beatings, not eating, rape, pillages, and that was a lot of fun. You know, why don't you just leave us where we were? Then they said, for there was no food and water, there is food and water. And we loathe this worthless food. You know the manna you give us? You know the rocket which provided water? Eh, not good enough. We want steak. So they were, they were complaining about God's provision. And then we know that God disciplined them. The Lord, after they were whining and complaining and not, not trusting in God's provisions, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that people of Israel died. Numbers 21, you can read this. The fiery serpents, as they bit these people, they had raging fevers, they were inflicted, unquenchable fire within, then they finally died. And we said last week, there was a mirror of what was going on in their souls. They were slowly walking away from he who is life, and they were complaining, whining, they were not trusting in God's provision, and God sent fiery snakes to teach them and to show them and to discipline them. But in the midst of it, they're like, this is not good. We shouldn't have done this, smart people. And they said to Moses, listen, we confess, we repent of our sins. Please, please go and talk to the Lord for us. God goes, Moses goes to God and God tells him, this is what I want you to do. People are, people are learning their lesson. Make a fiery serpent yourself out of gold or bronze. Set it on a pole. All right, And everyone who is bitten, all they do is you, you raise up the pole and those who look to the fiery snake, which I am behind, I am doing the healing, will be healed. Let them trust in my provision. Let them trust in me as they look to the pole and live. And you know what they did? They were smart. They did that and they lived. Jesus brings that story into Nicodemus about being born anew and born again and rebirthed and says, just like Moses. Moses lifted up the snake and people lived so must the Son of Man be is lifted up on a pole, which is the cross. And when you look to Jesus, you will live. Look to Jesus and you will live. Don't trust in your own provision. Nicodemus, it's not about you. It's not about your religion. It's not about doing well. It's about the Son of Man who's lifted up on the pole. And just like 
Israelites who were denying and, and, and complaining about God's provision, Nicodemus didn't understand, and, and Jesus is bringing those stories together. Nicodemus is like the Israelites, you're dying, you're bit with venomous poison, and unless you look to Jesus, you are not going to live. God will provide for you, and it's not your religion, it's the cross. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. And the story he says, the story's about me. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. I know it happened years ago, but the story's about me. Look to me, look to the cross, and you will have life. Look to Jesus and believe in his substitutionary sacrifice in your place. Look to Jesus, and you'll have life. Jesus says, when I die, I'll be lifted up. So he asks the question, why? Why? What does God's love really mean? God provided a way for the Israelites and for Nicodemus through the cross so that he can have life. As he is lifted up, you can be spiritually healed. He's the only means of salvation. God's love then is not just something he does or even something he, not only does he do it, not only is that who he is, but listen, God's love in chapter 3, verse 16, is an overcoming love. I, I need you to see that this morning. They were dying, they were rebellious, they confessed, they repented, and God provided. Even though what they got, they deserved, God provided an overcoming love to them. That's our first clue of what God's love really means. Now, John will speak of God's love in a way in which God loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. As we go on in this gospel account, we're going to read John 3. The Father loves the Son and given all things into His hand. John 5, for the Father loves the Son, shows Him all things. John 10, the reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life. That kind of love is not John 3.16. That kind of love is a mutual love. It's a perfect love. It's a love that has no hurdles, no sin. Perfect harmony. No separation to reconcile. That's not the kind of love we see here in verse 16. Verse 16 is an overcoming love. Yes, God loves everyone. Yes, even God is love in 1 John 4. And there's a sense in which God loves all the things that he made. But that's not the love we're talking about in verse 16. Verse 16, for God loved the world. And to understand what the world is, we'll know what kind of love God is talking about. The world that he loves is what the scripture says. We looked at it last week in verse 16, the flesh. The world is the human nature, the fallen human depravity of men and women. Just read the newspaper. Just watch the television. Jesus already told Nicodemus, all your religion, you're still dead. Fallen humanity is dead. Ever since Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the world, and everyone since them has been born spiritually dead. They need life. They need to be connected to Jesus. For God so loved the world. Paul says in chapter 2, the world is dead in their sins. The world is filled with men and women who are children of wrath. Paul will go on to say to Titus, We ourselves are foolish and disobedient, slaves to passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, He redeemed us, He rescued us. Not because of works done by by myself in my own righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I need you to see that this morning. For God so loved the world means we are hell-bound, rebellious sinners deserving to be separated from God in eternity, but he loved us anyway. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. Why? So that you can be like my Father who is in heaven who even though we were enemies of God, loves us anyway. The reason that many take for granted the love of God and they yawn and say he's supposed to is because we don't understand the deep need of our souls. We scoff and we expect God to love us because we're so lovable. 
But we are not, according to Scripture. If we were, God would not have to send His only Son to the cross to die a grueling death for our sins as a sacrifice for sin. The passion, the motive of God was love. Love for a world that is rebellious, you and I, and dead in sin. But his passion and his motive moved him to action. And he sent his son, number one. Number two, the purpose. Look at this. The love of God motivated him to send his son was not without purpose. Look at verse 16. Second part. That whoever believes in him, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but what? Have eternal life. Okay, have eternal life. Verses 16 and 17 and 18, we're gonna look at, I'm gonna gonna point out three very important things. Number one is the central purpose of God sending his son. Look at verse 16 again. Whosoever, look at the universal language. Whosoever believes, right? There are those who are perishing who do not believe. There are those who are, uh, whosoever believes has eternal life and they are not perishing. John makes it very clear, the two contrasts that are before us. There are those who look to the pole and they were saved when a snake bit them. There are those who refused to look and they died. Two contra- a contrast showing two people. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, eternal life, as you know, I mentioned this once before, I mentioned it again. Eternal life does not begin when we uh, uh, step out of this world into the next. Okay? Eternal life does not mean, according to Scripture, that life only has, is, is, is only for some, that only some live eternally. The Scripture is clear. Everyone born will live forever. But not everybody here, as you can tell in our text, has eternal life. That's what he's saying. Jesus, according to John, in the Gospel according to John, what he spoke, came to earth to bring life. To, to those who were dead in their sins, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he says. Eternal life doesn't begin when one dies. Eternal life begins when we're connected with Jesus by faith. Jesus says, this is eternal life in John 17, that you know me. You know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Family, eternal life does not begin when we step out into eternity. Eternal life begins for the believer, the moment they're connected with Jesus because Jesus is eternal life. He is life himself. Matthew 25, Jesus makes it very clear, this contrast as well. He says there'll be some who go into eternal punishment, there'll be some who go into eternal life. The eternality is not in question. It's about where you will spend eternality. This is serious. I'm sensing in the room too. This is, this is eternity at stake here. This is not stuff we want to mess with. And look at this invitation. It's for you. It's for me. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And people love to mess with that verse. Well, whosoever or eternal life, and they stick on one side and they say, you know what? God has his chosen, which he does, yet God has the place where he says, whosoever, which he does, which is right. Both. The invitation is for you this morning. The invitation is for every single person in this room, okay? There are some that want to press certain theological perspectives in this verse. I like to look at this beautiful and glorious passage and say there's a tension in Scripture that God is sovereign. We talk about this all the time. God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. Well, explain that to me. I can't. I just believe what this says. And God is sovereign, and you are responsible. And in the fullness of Scripture, God is the initiator. God is the principal actor in our salvation. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. But we are required to make a choice. We are responsible for believing and not believing. It was John Calvin, and some of you would be surprised that he said this, but John Calvin himself said, God has employed the universal term whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is also the import of the term world, which he formerly used. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world. 
when he invites all men without exception to faith of Christ, which is nothing else than entrance into life itself, end quote. We want to minimize. And we want to say, well, God is sovereign. God will do what he wants. And others will say, no, God, God makes very clear command that you need to respond. I say both. Maybe I can't figure it all out, and that's okay. I'm not God, not even close, okay? But I can't figure it out. But there have been some great theologians along the way that try to put together an understanding that God is sovereign, he's in control of the universe, he rules and reigns the universe, and yet man is responsible, and whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Much smarter than I am. There's a guy, his name is, um, uh, he's a pastor, Andrew Fuller. I got his quote here. 200 years ago. This is what he said. Listen to me. A fleshly mind, one that's not spiritual, may ask, how can these things be? How can divine predestination, that's the foreordained knowledge of God, bringing some to salvation, how can divine predestination accord with human agency and accountability? Question mark. But a true humble Christian finds both in the Bible, and they believe both. Though he may be able unable fully to understand their consistency, he will find in one a motive to depend entirely on God, that's his sovereignty, and in the other a caution against lawfulness and presumption and neglect of duty. Therefore, a Christian, if he views the doctrine properly, will find nothing in it to hinder the free use of warnings, invitations, and persuasions, either to the believers or the unbelievers, yet he will be grounded in hope, the hope of success not on the pliability of the bending of the human mind, but on the promised grace of God, who is known to inspire them with the breath of life. Family, this is what he's saying, and this is what the scripture teaches. The call is for you this morning. Every soul, every person, it's an honest call. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the purpose. That's the central purpose. Do you believe? Will you trust? Number two, what was not the purpose? Look at verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now we're getting a little bit of language here that may make you a little uncomfortable. The word condemned means to judge. It's legal language. It's cosmic courtroom language. That's what, it, that's what the word judge means. Jesus will go on in chapter seven, uh, 12 and say, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world through me. Now, if you know the story of the gospel according to John, if you read it before, there is a place where Jesus will come to in chapter 9. Jesus said, with judgment, I did come to the world. That those who do not see me, those who, excuse me, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And you say, well, wait a minute. I did not come to judge. I came to judge. What's the story here? It's not a contradiction. No contradiction in Scripture. The contradiction becomes uh, un, uh, you know, clear to us as paradox becomes clear. Paradox is two truths that seem contradictory, but they're not. When we understand, as we'll see in this passage, that when Jesus comes into the world, when Jesus came offering grace and love and mercy to those who believe, it will inevitably, inevitably bring judgment because he's the light of the world. He exposes darkness. God will judge according to his son. But that was not the mission of God sending his son on the first advent, which is celebrated. The coming of Jesus was not condemnation, but is the consequence of it because his light will shine in your heart. The truth will expose you as we will see in the end of this verse. Salvation was the message. So he did not come to condemn. He came to save. That's what it says. Number three, what does it mean? Look at the verse in verse um, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, not judged, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned what? Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of the only Son of God. Condemnation and judgment 
is not something we like to talk about in this culture. Especially we talk about God, about you know, God's condemnation, God's judgment. Some churches even remove language that has anything to do with judgment, with condemnation. But think about it, family. Think about the courtroom. Think about our culture. Think about society. Think about good, right judges who judge. Who, you know, the same thing it is with our Lord. When we sin, when we rebel in culture and in our society, whether the judge knows you or likes you, he has to uphold righteousness and justice in order for this whole universe to run. Well, God made you. God loves you. God provides for you. And yet we have all kinds of idols in our lives that we love and treasure other things. And he demands us to love and treasure him. It's for our own good. His glory is for our good is what we were created for, and yet we rebel against him. And just like a judge, unless the debt is paid, there's going to be judgment. And unless the debt is paid in the cosmic courtroom, there will be judgment. You know it, and I know it, just from looking around us. And that's what it means. And that's what what, what John is trying to tell us, what Jesus is trying to tell us. And look what it says. It says he's condemned already. You know what that means? Look at verse 36 in the, same, in the same, chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And we're going to talk about this next week. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I'm going to show you next week that wrath of God has everything to do with the love of God. There's no wrath, no love, no love, no wrath. But right now, he's talking about condemned already. The wrath of God already abides on them. What does he mean? Jesus did not come into a world that's unbiased. Jesus did not come. God did not send his son in love to a world that's unbiased and impartial. But a world that's in a just and right condemnation and judgment because we run from him. We don't want nothing to do with him. And he loves us. And we want to do our own thing. We want to be our own lords. We want to be our own saviors. We want to worship what we want to worship rather than worship him. And how do we escape? Look what it says. It depends on what you do with Jesus. He did not come to an unbiased and partial world so that they may you know, think he's such a great guy. Or Jesus is such a good teacher. Or all the things of Christianity. You know, If you follow those things, you have a warmness in your heart. No, no, no. He came to make the guilty people non-guilty, condemned, not condemned. He, he came to take those who are dead and make them spiritually alive. And all this is done through the motive of love. By believing in the name of the Son of God. God doesn't owe anyone an acquittal. God doesn't owe anyone life. God's love, his motive, his passion was to love you even though you're unlovable and give you his son so that an already condemned world could have life. I want to magnify God here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm here to show you the great love of Christ for you. That he loves you with, an un, with a dying love. That even though you're unlovable and ran and maybe you're running today, he loves you in spite of you. I want to make much of Christ today. I want to make much of Christ and his grace today. There's a story. John 8, we'll look at it. A woman caught in adultery. Maybe you know the story. And these religious leaders, just like Nicodemus, knows his Bible, knows the law, brings an adulterous woman who's caught in the act and says to Jesus, trying to trap him, listen, this woman was caught in adultery. You know what the law of Moses says. She's condemned, condemned to death, stoned to death. That's what it was. And Jesus looked around and used that opportunity to show them how wicked they were. Because he's the only one who's perfect and knows the thoughts and hearts of every man. And he looks at her and he stands up and he said to her, Women, woman, where are they? Nobody else around. He's like, who's got, who's got no sin that can stone her, that can condemn her? Anybody? And everybody, one by one, they all left. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Why would Jesus say that? Because he had not come to condemn, but to save. An already judged world. He came to bear the guilt and punishment for her sins, for my sins, so that we can be forgiven. That's the purpose. Look at the pronouncement. Verse, this, is, this is a very, very interesting verse. Verse 19. 
So there's a verdict going on. There's a pronouncement going on. And look at the process in which he is... And this is the judgment. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. Jesus comes to save, but as the light shines, judgment happens. It just does. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. We learned in John 1 that Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh that Jesus tabernacled with us. And then in verse 4, he says, Jesus is life in life he is the light of the world. Remember that? John 1. Jesus will stand up in John 8 and say, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, I am a little light, this little light of mine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say there are multiple lights and this, this one teaches this, this one teaches that. Each one has their own light and they're all headed in the same direction. That's not what he says. Singular and exclusive, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is the revelation, the unveiling of God, and the objective reality of holiness, purity, and truth. And when truth and light come in, it says men and women hate it. Because they love darkness. It's a love affair. It's anti-God. They would rather live without God in the brilliance of his beauty and truth. The fundamental problem that we see here is a moral one. Their deeds are evil. They do wicked things. Their deeds are evil because they are not willing to come to the light. They're not willing to come to the truth. They're not willing to embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hold on to their pride. And when the light comes, judgment just happens. When the purity and the truth and the goodness of Christ shines, you will either see your sin your idolatry, your rebellion, and come to him or run from him like a bug when the light goes on in a dark basement. When Jesus, who is the light and the truth, comes into the world, he exposes ourself. Family, listen, you don't even know yourself until Christ shows you who you are. He created you. He made you. He knows you more than you know yourself. And when his light, his life, his truth, his goodness, his purity comes to you, you either run away or run to him. This means that people are condemned not nearly because they just, I don't want nothing to do with Jesus, that's part of it, but they actually love their sin. They actually run, they don't turn from it, they run. It's not just intellectual, it's moral. Let me show you what I mean. When I was, you know, a few years ago, I was in the backyard with my kids. I used to love to throw the football around. Right, guys? You play football. I got four daughters, so somebody was throwing a football with me. <laughs> Most of the times, my little Anna. She loved to throw the football. Man, she could throw a football, a baseball. She, we love, in the backyard, we just throw in the ball. Let's go out and throw the ball. And on that same illustration, what if, what if a guy was out there with his daughter and throwing the baseball back and forth or the football back and forth and uh we're throwing it back and forth and all of a sudden she goes like this and throws it that way at 45 degrees i would do what most dads would do go chase the ball around the yard for a while after a while i get a little tired be like right here <laughs> right you've been everywhere right like right here right here dad come closer come a little closer no right here Dad, come closer. Dad, come closer. And what if I kept going closer and closer and closer, and even I was right five feet in front of her, and she threw the ball to the side, no matter how close I got? What's the real issue? Was the real issue the closeness, or was the real issue her aim? You know, we are not righteous in ourselves. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God cannot embrace sin. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worthy of worship if he wasn't pure and holy and good and just. He just wouldn't be. And because he is, we are separated from him. There is a distance. But this verse tells us it's not just a distance. It's the aim. Men and women loved darkness. 
Men and women love what they do. Verse 20 says, whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? His work should be exposed. The word exposed, not only seen, it has to do with being guilty and, and shame. It doesn't mean that, oh, we won't do anything because somebody will see our sin. They love their sin. It's not exposure to the world because the world is already condemned. They love darkness. They enjoy darkness. People do sin in order to be exposed to the world. And as long as the world is in darkness, their sin is, is being expressed. It's not that kind of exposure. What he's saying is exposure to the light. There's plenty of people to do sin with. There's plenty of people to rebel with God with. There's plenty of them. As long as the light of Christ is kept out of mainstream America or any other place, the darkness only endures more darkness. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So, underline that in your Bible. So, so that's really important, that it may be clearly seen. Do what is true. They're living in the light. They're doing what is right. So that it may be clearly seen that his or her works have been what? Carried out in God. We've come full circle with Nicodemus. Dude, you're dead. You're running from God. You're living in darkness. You're condemned. You lack the power in yourself to religiously save yourself. You need a new heart. You need to believe on Jesus. And when Jesus comes in and he reconciles us and he forgives us of our sins, he empowers us to walk in the lights. To walk with him. Why? Because our sins are forgiven. There's no longer condemnation. Romans 8.1 is clear. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how can that be? Because the gospel. Because the gospel declares that Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to take that which belongs to us. But notice, it's not like, look at this, look at the verse. Whoever does what is true and right comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen how great they are. So that it can be clearly seen how moral they are. So it can be clearly seen how much they love to take care of people and help granny across the street. No, that's not what it says. It says it can be clearly seen that what? That their works, their deeds, their life, their words are what? Been carried out in God. You don't come walking waltzly into the light and say, look how good I am, pat myself on the back. It's been done through God. Nicodemus, you need the Lord. Family, friends, you need the Lord. Our deeds belong not to ourselves. It is the work of God. It is the work and power of God and grace in our lives. You see, in the darkness, you're your own Savior and Lord. In the light, he's king, he's Lord, he died for me. You see the difference there? This makes it clear that the doer of good, the lover of light, is not some inherently beautiful, moral, super person. They are not. There are none. We embrace the truth and light even when it exposes our sins. Listen, because we see, we savor the incalculable worth of Christ in the gospel. That's why we come. Now, it's easy way for you and I to connect with that today. Here's my question for you. Here is whether or not we are walking in the light, embracing the gospel, or we're running in darkness and doing what we want, or even hiding ourselves from the light. Let me ask you this question. When you invite Christ into your life, when you read scripture, and God, <laughs> through his spirit, says to you, hey, Lou, you are really more messed up than you thought you were. Hey, Lou, you know what? You are, well, not as patient as everyone thinks you are. Hey, Lou, you know what? You're more selfish than you ever thought you were. As I read scripture, as the light comes into my life, as he's exposing my sin, do I run away from God? Do I not want to hear his word? Do I not want to go to church? Do I not, do I feel like he's so far from me? He wants nothing to do with me? Then we haven't gotten it yet. But when the Spirit of God speaks to your heart and he exposes your sin, do you run to Jesus? <laughs> do you cling to Jesus? Do you say, oh, I am more messed up than I ever thought I was going to be, but praise God, your grace is greater than all my sin. Then you're getting it. When you see that your sin is a pile, but you see that God's grace abounds, 
more so. You'll see the incalculable worth of Christ. And you will run in the light. You will stay in the light. You will embrace the light. He is life. Where can I go, the apostle said. Where can I go? You, you say, you know what? Your love is greater than I ever thought. God, your love is greater than I ever imagined. Your mercy is more precious and glorious than I ever understood. And when you understand that, let God pronounce. Because Jesus Christ died for that judgment. Look at the last part here. Let's start over and just look real quickly at verse 16 one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to me two more minutes. This is important. Here's the good news. It is wrapped up in God's motive of love for you and his provision His glorious provision and action in sending his son. For the gospel is good news that although you and I and all men are born under the judgment of God, it is not necessary for anyone to stay there. Today, there's a way of escape. God so loved you, rebellious one, me, rebellious one, that he gave his only son. The sending of God's son, listen, the sending of of God's Son in love deeply cost Him. It was infinitely valuable to us and entirely free. Did you catch that? Deeply costly, infinitely valuable, and entirely free. Free. God demonstrate, the Bible says, love toward us that while we were dead in our sins, Christ came and died for us. So I want to wrap it up and say, look at John 3.16 one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his own. Israelites, you complained, you, you, you refused to trust. Nicodemus, you're just like that, but look to Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, you're dead. Those of you who are dying, look to Jesus. Look to the pole, look to the cross and have life. Religion and morality, all that stuff won't get you there. Just look to Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But the world he gave his son to is judged and condemned, loves darkness. But the world in which we are part of, already condemned, is why Jesus came. It's what the love of God means. He loves you despite you. When your heart embraces the truth of your judgment, of your condemnation, of your darkness, and then you see the glory of Christ and all that he's done. When I say God loves you, you will say, I know he does. I can't believe it still. 25 years, 30 years I'm walking with you, I can't believe it. All this sin, all this selfishness, all this lack of patience, God loves me. It won't be a yawn. It won't be, oh yeah, he has to, he's supposed to, that's his job. It's gonna be, I can't believe he still loves me. But he does. That's the difference. Can you imagine this conversation in the Godhead? In in eternity past, the Father says to Jesus, listen, um, there's a bunch of people down there. They hate me. They're my enemy. They won't listen. They're all hard-headed. They're living in darkness. They're rebellious. They're going to hell unless something happens. And they just won't listen. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go and die for them. I want you to go and sacrifice and absorb the judgment, the wrath, and the condemnation on yourself on the cross so that they can have eternal life. That's the conversation. That's God's love for you. That's God's love for you. That's God's grace for you. On the cross, God the Father poured out his judgment. Jesus was judged. Darkness came over the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on him so that we can be free. Because of the cross, the love of God can be offered to undeserving, hell-bound sinners. Because of the cross, God's holiness is upheld and His justice is poured out and His love is freely offered to you. All the punishment sin deserves, supposed to get, all the punishment sin deserves is poured out on Christ. That's the love of God. That's the love of God. And if you believe in Jesus, then God can take us into his world, into his family, and we can have life. I'll end with this quote, Tim Keller. Man, woman, 
asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's what we do. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. And God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. The cross means if you believe in Jesus, there is no wrath left for you. No wrath left for you. It has all fallen into his heart, Jesus' heart. Because on the cross, both the love and the standards of God are satisfied. On the cross, both the love and the fury of God perfectly and brilliantly coincide and shine in glory. That's the love of God for you. If you have never, ever, ever understood that, I hope you do today. I hope you don't run from the darkness, but run to the light. He loves you, and he will shine his light in you, and you'll see things that you don't like. But when you embrace him, and you love him, and you trust him, and you rely upon him, and you fall on him, trusting his work on the cross as your payment for sin, he will give you new life. All your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. He will empower you to live a life of hope and change. He loves you. Respond to him today. The band's gonna play and we're gonna ask people to sit for a moment and respond of God's great love for you. Father, so heavy. We believe what you have said. And Lord, you could have left us where we were and where we are, but you didn't. You could have sat back on your throne and said, look at the mess you've made. Go find your way home, but you didn't. You looked in love toward a rebellious people and you gave us your son to die for a world who is in rebellion against you so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Father, by your spirit, open our hearts to see that truth. And we pray that as the curtain has surrounded your heart even this moment, that you will ask Jesus to come. You will return from living your life as your own personal Savior and Lord and give your life over to Him who loves you so much that He was willing to die in your place, taking your condemnation and judgment so that you can be forgiven and freed and spend eternity with Him. Let's quietly pray to Him this morning.